Before I introduce today's episode, I want to say a big thank you to my newest podcast supporter, Maureen. Maureen is one of several people who believe in my work with this podcast and are offering financial support to help me create the podcast, write my blog, and create content at A Fostered Life's YouTube channel. And I'm really encouraged by their support. If you recognize the value of what I do here at A Fostered Life and you want to help underwrite my work with a dollar or two or five dollars a month so I can continue offering so many free resources to foster parents and prospective foster parents, please go to patreon.com slash a fostered life and become a patron. You choose how much you give each month and every little bit helps. And now enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant Crispin, and this is episode 17. I've lost count of the number of times someone has told me that they really want to be involved in foster care and they really care about foster youth, but they're not in a season of life where they can be a foster parent. So they wonder, how can they help? How can you make a difference in the life of a foster youth without being a foster parent? Well, there are a number of ways to answer that question, and my guest in today's podcast is going to talk about two of them. Laura was a volunteer cuddler in the neonatal intensive care unit for years before being introduced to a desperate need in the foster care system after caring for one particular baby for several months. She went through the training, and became a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate. Over the six-plus years that Laura has spent as a CASA, she's served 23 children, and in today's episode, she's going to share what that experience has been like and what you might expect if you're considering becoming a CASA. I'm so grateful for the work that Laura and many others have done as CASAs, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. So I'm really happy to be talking with you today, and um, as I just said, um, my goal is that people listening to this interview will understand specifically the work of of a CASA, of a court-appointed special advocate. and I'll just say before we before we roll into that, that a lot of times I hear from people who say, I really want to be involved with foster care. I have a heart for foster youth, but I know I'm not in a place in life where I can be a foster parent. What are some ways I can be involved? And I often say... Um, Um, I recommend being a cuddler and I recommend being a CASA. And those are two roles that, um, that I know of that have really benefited our children at different times in their lives. And so, um, I would love to know what led you first to pursue becoming a CASA. And then maybe in that same conversation, could you talk about what the work of a CASA does? Well, sure. I, I had been a baby cuddler. Um, for a couple of years, and I had a really um, kind of a bizarre case where a, a little, tiny little premature girl um, lost her mother. The mother died when she was 10 days old, and the hospital approached me and asked me if I could make a commitment to come and hold her for three hours at one of her care times, and they didn't care what shift I picked um, because they felt that she was medically viable, uh, but that she would suffer failure to thrive and 
perhaps an attachment disorder if I didn't. So I did that um, every day for about three months, and then she was placed in foster care. Okay, let's just pause for a second. I'm sorry, I need to interrupt you because I want you to talk a little bit about what a cuddler is because I know what a cuddler is because I've seen them in action. But you were you were in a volunteer position. Can you talk about what that looked like, like what a cuddler is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was at Swedish Hospital. Swedish has a great program. Um, often the babies I cuddled were um, babies withdrawing from opiates or something else. Sometimes they were just premature um, and the parents couldn't be there when they needed to be. It is a volunteer position. And it's just to aid the nursing staff um, because children have care time. Babies do every three hours. But the nurses, while they can tend to them, they can't hold them um, for extended periods and comfort them. So that's basically what a cuddler is. So it's a volunteer who basically goes in and holds babies because all of the research and all of the science shows that babies who are not held can't, won't thrive. And being held and cuddled is like part of their medical treatment in some ways. Sure. Yeah. So I really, I did that for a little over two years, and then I got very close to this little girl right. who went into foster care, mm-hmm. um, then continued a very close relationship with her, got to know her foster parents who wound up adopting her. And at the time, uh, her now adoptive mother said to me, okay, how can you go back to being a cuddler? What you really need to do is be a casa. And I didn't know what that was. But their young daughter was the third child they'd adopted, and with their middle daughter, uh, they had a real nightmare. Um, And with the youngest one, who I had cuddled, they had a casa. And they said that the difference between having someone advocate for the child and push things along was just night and day. And so I looked into what a casa was. talked with the people at the King County CASA program, interviewed and went through the training and became an advocate for kids in foster care. So, Laura, who does the CASA work for? Are, do you work for the state? Do you work for, uh, yeah, who's your, who, who's your, who do you answer to as a CASA? I answer to the King County um, CASA program. Mm-hmm. So you're not... And, but really... yeah. I'm not an employee. I am a volunteer, uh, but I, I would also say this, and I, I think it's probably true for most causes. I know it's true for me. Um, because I'm not on the clock, I'm really never off the clock, mm-hmm. and I give all the foster parents um, my phone number, and I, I can tell you at least in one case, the difference between having a CASA and not having a CASA was the difference between life and death because it was uh, very late at night and they were, uh, these foster parents were traveling with a child in their care and the little girl wound up um, needing medical care and the state had not provided them with uh, a travel order or the ability to consent to medical care. And so I was called, and I had on my computer the order allowing them to travel, 
which allowed them to get care for her. And she wound up in a Portland hospital at midnight on Christmas Eve with ketoacidosis. So, wow. I, that is just one kind of one example of why it's really important for kids to have somebody that's not an employee, I think of the state. Um, And also I think social workers in my almost seven years change all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't have one child who's had the same social worker throughout their case. Wow. But they've had the same CASA for as long as they've had you. They have. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And for kids who are so um, vulnerable anyway, and then they don't have consistent people with eyes on their case, that's, that's one of the things that I think a CASA can do is is really keep an eye on the case through the changing social workers and through, you know, the ups and downs of court and all of that. You are the one of the only ones, sometimes even changing foster parents, you're the only one who oftentimes sees the case from the start or at least from when you got assigned that child um, until, you know, you see it through. And in some ways, I would say you work for the kids, right? I mean, you you work for them, essentially. Well, that's what I was going to say. You said, who do you work for? Mm -hmm. Well, I answered to a pretty amazing supervisor that I have, but really I work for the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately I answer to the kids. Um, So when I made a commitment, I told my family, I'm, I'm in this for five years and in October, it'll be seven years. And I still have uh, eight kids and Three are in the process of being returned home to their mother, but there's a process with that, and the rest are going to be adopted. But I have promised all of them I won't leave them until their permanent plan has been achieved. So I I think I'm in it for another two years. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. And so for people listening who are thinking that this might be something that they would like to take on, you know, bearing in mind that a big part of it is making a commitment to a child in a really messy, broken, drawn out system. So you can expect it to be probably longer than you might think. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say it's enter it. Um, so the training, uh, they do the very best they can and they're quite organized, but the training did not prepare me even a little bit for what it's really like when you're in the trenches. I mean, the things that come up and I think there is a mentoring program. I have mentored new costs. I'm not doing that now because I'm just kind of underwater with the kids I have, Mm -hmm. but I would say, ask for help, go with another CASA to a court hearing, um, Learn on your feet, because that's really what I had to do, and I didn't know the answers to a lot of questions, but there are a lot of resources around, and the uh, King County CASA program has great supervisors that are have really, really been helpful to me. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the relationships that you've 
developed with the children and maybe even with their families. You know, we, we talk a lot about how the goal, many people say the goal of foster care is to reunify children. That's the first goal of foster care is to get them back into their family of origin. Um, if not their parents, which, you know, you hope their parents will be able to have them back, but if not, they're, um, some other family member or something. Um, so obviously, as a CASA, you would all also get to know their family members, correct? Yes, um, both foster families and biological families. Right. Um, sadly, I've had a lot more kids adopted than returned home, but I always have started with the goal of doing everything I can to help a parent um, access and access services to cure whatever their parental deficiencies are. And I would say that in 98% of my cases, the issues have been drugs and or mental health, and sometimes it's hard to know what came first. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, am, I have had 23 kids adopted, and I've returned home eight. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, one child who was returned home, I, I don't have, I'm not in touch with uh, her adopted or her biological father at all. And mom's rights were terminated. Um, the other kids I am in touch with, and I'm in close touch with all the kids and their families who were adopted, which is really, really nice. I mean, I've been able to see them, uh, go on and go to their sporting events. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really been gratifying. Yeah. You have had um, sometimes to go into some situations that might have felt dangerous or even been dangerous. I know one time you and I spoke and you were actually going to knock on the door of um, a, a parent whose children were in foster care because she wasn't responding to any of the efforts of the social worker to reach out. And they're trying to, you know, get her into services, make sure that she is following her plan um, for unification. And no, and she wasn't returning any calls. So you were actually going to try to track her down. And, and I just thought, wow, I mean, you know, you don't think of some of those risks in some ways that CASAs take in order to um, really try to try to really make an effort to support the children's parents and help them access the services that they're getting. Have there ever been times when you have been doing this work and you have been kind of like, wow, I'm wading into some sketchy territory right here? Yes, recently. And I advocate for a little girl who was just nine. Um, I've had her for almost three years. She was in a home with her mother and her biological grandparents, and she was removed um, because of some medical neglect, and it was thought that she would, her mother, who was very young, would become educated and could get her back. Um, I went to see them where they lived, and as I walked up to the door, there was a neighbor, uh, and there were needles all over, and I walked in, and I was bit by a dog. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, and then I'm kind of fast forwarding on this. Uh, she, unfortunately, the mother uh, was not able to become educated and then waded into some drugs. So it was my only non-drug case that has, that changed quickly. Wow. Uh, but then, so then she has two other young children 
that became dependent but are placed in their family home with um, relative suitable adults. And I was asked to take that case. And it is really the first case of a relative that I turned down because I did feel at risk going into that home. Sure. Yeah. And when you're, when you're doing that, are you essentially going by yourself? Like they don't team you up. You are on your own going to these places, correct? I am on my own, but I will say um, I have a couple of cases where, because some kids have uh, some children for whatever reason, if if a child is legally free, they are assigned an attorney. And when a child becomes 12, they are assigned an attorney. And for kids who've been in foster care, you know, for quite a while, and kids who have attorneys and a social worker and a CASA, that's a lot of visits for a kid to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see them once a month. So I do, I have had three cases where we try to coordinate. We all drive separately, but the social worker, the child attorney, and I will all um, visit at the same time. Yeah. Other than that, Mm -hmm. I'm solo. Right. Right. I'd love to talk a little bit about court and your role in the, I don't know, every six months or so, it seems like there is a hearing for children who are in care and there's not any big major movement in their case. It seems like there is a a hearing like every six months, like a status hearing. I don't remember what it's called, but, um, and I, I know that the foster parent would be invited to give a foster a caregiver report to the court. And I remember hearing about a CASA report to the court. How much weight would you say the voice of the CASA holds um, when it comes to determining the future for these kids? I think they carry most of the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that um, having been told that by a former King County Superior Court judge who actually, when I was um considering taking on the role of being a CASA, he said to me, this is really something you should do. He said, when I had uh, cases come before me, and he was really talking about in termination trials, Mm -hmm. he said I would take the parents' attorney's reports and I'd put them on one side. I'd take the department's report on the other side, and I'd put the CASA's report right in the middle because I thought the CASA is the only person whose only interest is the child. Yeah. And that was really, really compelling to me. So, and I have, I have been in situations, the hearings you're referencing, and they actually schedule them every five months because they're usually continued. Oh, yeah. And statutorily, they have to happen every six months. Right. Um, those hearings are, they alternate between being a permanency planning hearing and a dependency review. Um, kind of frustrating to call it a permanency planning hearing when you have kids that have been in care for seven or eight years. Right. Um, sort yeah. of a misnomer. Yeah. Why, with all of the changes in certain legislation that is supposed to keep kids from, quote, languishing in the foster care system, why do kids still stay in foster care for six and seven years? I wish I could tell you. Okay. The pace of it's terrible. Yeah. Um, I, I, the turnover in social workers. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you get to a hearing, and I, I have vocalized recently, I don't know how many more of these hearings I can go to and say, 
well, thank you all. And then the judge will look at his or her bailiff and say, and the next hearing is, and the bailiff then finds the next hearing date, and nothing of substance has happened at all. So I have been working really hard at if a kid's been in care for a long time and if there is no hope of reunification, I have asked the judge to order um, that a termination petition be filed within X amount of days, mm -hmm. usually 60 days. Mm -hmm. Or if a parent is somehow not able to access services, I've asked the judge to help facilitate the ordering of specific services and order the social worker to make more active efforts yeah. because otherwise this just goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah. And I know changing attorneys, like the parent can change attorneys and that can stretch it out too and all sorts of things. Um, but um, I was just curious if you had any insight on that, because it's just one of those questions, you know, people talk all the time about legislation that is supposed to shorten the amount of time that kids spend in care. But even with legislation, I still hear of so many cases where kids are in care for years and years. And, um, and it really, they, they really suffer. I mean, they really are damaged by that particular aspect of being in foster care. So um, well, for sure. Yeah. You know, there's a question I have. You you said in passing early on that the preparation that you did, the training you went through to be a CASA was not, it did not really prep you for what it was going to really be like. And I say the same thing about foster parenting. You go through the training, but nothing that you experience in training can adequately prepare you for the the weight of what you're stepping into, the emotional effect, the lifestyle effect, you know, all of the ways that it just changes not only your life, but it changes you, <laughs> who you are. And um, I wonder, I, I mean, I almost don't even have to ask this because I, I know the answer is yes. And, and I've never asked you this before, but I know the answer is yes. But have you experienced like the compassion fatigue or the secondary trauma of spending so much time reading the details of these horrific cases, spending time with these precious children who you come to love and you come to really be invested in and um, knowing that their lives are going to be forever changed just by nature of having been in this system. How do you deal with that? Where do you put, I mean, for me, it sent me to, you know, I've been in therapy and I've been on medication and a lot of things that I never needed before I was a foster parent really became a big part of my, you know, coping and trying to stay healthy myself. Um, how has this affected you? What have you done with the weight of what you've experienced these last six plus years as a CASA? Well, hmm. I, my husband often says, it's like you live in a really bad reality TV show. You couldn't write these things. Mm -hmm. And I think I shared with you early on, there are just some things that you know or read about. Um, it's once you know them, you can't unknow those things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, you know, I'm physically pretty active. I mean, I try to stay athletically really active. Um, I certainly have had a therapist, uh, don't right now, but feel healthy. There are times where it's just talk to my kids without naming names or specifics of kids. Just, And I think it's made them more compassionate. Okay. And they're all young adults now, but they really have helped 
uh, help keep me healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think also, I know for me, um, getting back to why I'm doing it in the first place is a big part of it too. And just recognizing that as hard as it is at times, um, that there are some really good reasons, um, for doing it and, you know, just recognizing that the role you play is a significant and helpful role to these kids. And so some, somehow for me, that helps me see the hard times through, um, through that lens of like, but it's, it is actually making a difference and that, you know, bolsters me a little bit. I think one thing, um, that people who might be considering becoming a coffee should know is that, As of November, there were over 10,700 children in our state in foster care. And of those kids, 1,005 had a CASA, which is really frightening. Um, I have had experiences even really recently, as recently as two weeks ago, where if there had not been a CASA on a case, I really don't know what would have happened. I really don't. And I said to my supervisor in just incredible frustration, what would have happened to her if there hadn't been a cost set? And she said, well, all I can say is thank goodness you were there. We just need more people. And it could be just a lot of people that only take one case. Right. Um, I had a lot of cases. At, I mean, I, there was a period where I had 23 kids at one time. And Three of them were sibling groups, but mm-hmm. you need to see your kids once a month. And that, if there weren't siblings, I would have gone in, I would have spent 23 days seeing kids. And that's a lot in one month. So right. I'm way, way down from that now. But the need for causes is just, it's really huge. Yeah. Yeah, that was our experience for sure. I didn't, I guess I sort of knew about the existence of CASAs when we first became a foster parent. I'm honestly, I don't remember how I found out that CASAs were even a thing. Um, And we found ourselves facing some things with, with uh, some of our kids and just thought, there needs to be somebody who isn't us, who's not the foster parents, because we don't really have any say in anything. And, you know, and um, there needs to be someone who's got eyes on what's happening in this case, who isn't us and doesn't have this, you know, we, you know, obviously we couldn't be as objective, but somebody who has an objective view who can look at this case, because like you said, caseworkers were changing. We were, um, we saw, you know, we had a great case worker and then she got transferred to a different place. And then suddenly we had no steady case worker. It seemed like every month a new case or case worker was coming on the case. And I could see that important details about the kids, about their case were not being considered in some of the things that were being discussed. And I just said, you know, I, whatever happens with this case, I just want to know there's someone on it who's got eyes on, who understands what's happening from soup to nuts and who is going to really, you know, be. And so anyway, I reached out to the CASA um, office and I was like, we need a CASA. (laughs) And they were like, oh, well, you know, 
I don't know how many, I think he said there were 500 in the whole state and how many thousands of kids are there in foster care, you know? And so I realized it's not like you just, it's not like every child in care has one. And it's not like you can just call up a number and say, well, we need a CASA <laughs> and they assign you somebody. You're, you really have to go to bat. And uh, we got so fortunate in terms of when I made that call and I talked to someone who heard what I was saying and who, um, I guess he sends out, they send out a weekly update of children who are needing, who are requesting CASAs. And he said, I'm going to put your case, your children's case at the top of my list. And he did. And we ended up with a, with a jackpot of a CASA. But, um, but it's true that the foster parents, you, you, this is like for foster parents listening, this is one area that you need to be advocating for and, um, and really going for, you know, using your voice, using your telephone, using your email to, to get your kids at the front of the line if you can and really go to bat for them. Um, because like you said, there just aren't enough. No, there aren't. So, yeah. And, and of course I hope more people listening will consider this as a way to be involved. So would you say, so how, I mean, you, you had 23 kids at one time or you have had 23. Yeah. You had 23 at one time. Um, for someone who maybe gets into this and takes one or two cases, how much time would they need to expect to spend? What what would an average monthly schedule look like for them? Well, so let's say you start out and you take one case, which really is more common. There are a lot of causes to also hold down full-time jobs. Um, so let's imagine that's you, you, mm-hmm. the new volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the child once a month, and really that is, I mean, so the commitment there is not just to see the child because you really don't, I mean, I have, I have relationships with kids now where I sometimes stay an hour and occasionally, I mean, well, more than occasionally over the years I've gone, they've invited me to their sporting events mm-hmm. or a talent show. And mm-hmm. you don't have to go to those, but I have gone to many of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say it's an hour seeing a child. Then there's the travel time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have a child in Spanaway right now. Well, that's kind of a hike. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not all. And you can turn it down. You can look at a case by location and say, boy, that doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. So an hour seeing the child, um, trying to get updated. If you've got a child with special needs, um, I think it's really important to try to figure out who their service providers are mm-hmm. and just uh, try to contact a doctor, a therapist. Something. I mean, so on a monthly basis, maybe that's a half hour, an hour. And with hearings every five months, compiling the information to write a really thoughtful report that advocates for the best interest of the child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I always say that with each report I write, I probably put three or four hours into it. Mm-hmm. But so that's on a monthly basis. So mm-hmm. let's say you've got one case and you've got, I mean, maybe it's 10 hours a month. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I really say probably when you start, if, it's an, if you get an infant to start, they don't talk. And so there's a part in the report that always asks, what are the child's wishes as expressed to the CASA? Well, infants can't talk, so you really have to, you have to figure out um, who you go to to find out how the child is really doing. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Yeah, 
And then time. The more cases you take, the more time. Yes, for sure. And time speaking with relatives. Do you ever go to visits, like when a kid, when a child has a visit with their parent, or are, do you ever show up for those? I have, and that I've had, yes, and the parents have not taken particularly kindly to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but it's but important. I wanted to just see what's going on. Yeah, I would say that a big part of understanding what is best for a child is seeing their interactions with their parents. I just, I mean, yesterday, I just heard from someone yesterday who contacted me. She did not want to share anything of her story. Like I would have invited her to come on the podcast um, because she was responding to another podcast episode that I did where I interviewed a man who is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And he was just really giving me great insight on what it's like for a child to then, you know, interact with other adults when they've been so hurt by the adults that should, should, who should have been the safest for them. Well, this, this woman reached out and she was just sharing with me how, you know, for her, every, her abuser was her mother, her, her biological natural mother in her words was her sexually abused her. And, um, and she said when she ended up in a home with a really safe, wonderful family, um, she had all sorts of conflict with the mother and it was because she could not trust her. She did not feel comfortable with her. So I think, you know, seeing a child interacting with their parents and seeing, do they feel comfortable? Do they seem, you know, natural? Do they seem happy with them? Do they seem afraid? I mean, those would be things that I would think you would need to know if you were able to adequately represent their relationship. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But I think another thing you probably have to be prepared for is the parents to not necessarily want you around because you're another person who's kind of scrutinizing them. And that is really hard for the parents whose kids are in care. It is. And I would also say that I've had a couple of um, really good interactions. They didn't start out that way. But if you go, typically visits are either supervised or monitored by an outside visitation agency and so I'm only there as an observer and the parents initially every one of them that I've gone to kind of wonder what I'm doing there and they wonder if I'm judging them and uh, I understand that but I have become close to some of them and then they count on me to represent that they love their children and are really good to them. Yeah. So I understand that too. Yes. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is represent the children's best interest. And sometimes the children's best interest is to, to be reunified. And sometimes it's not. And you have a real front front row look at, at that and a, a voice to it. So, um, how would you say being a CASA has changed you? Oh, boy. Well, I think in every way. Um, I think I'm a lot more compassionate. I think I have far fewer judgments um, about how some of the parents have gotten into these situations. Um, So I have a lot of compassion for the parents and certainly for the kids. Mm -hmm. It's just I have a completely different lens on life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got... 
about two more years, maybe, as you see through the finish of these cases. And, um, and, but I know, I mean, I know that the work that you've done in these years of being a CASA has been invaluable to the children that you've served and their families. And, uh, and I'm grateful for you and others like you who are doing this really important work. And I hope many, many, many more people who have the capacity to take this on will, will give it, give it a go because we definitely need more and not everyone can be a foster parent. Um, and, and not everyone can be a CASA, but for people listening, I'm thinking of so many people I know who would just be such fantastic CASAs and, um, and, uh, could really make a light, a difference in the life of a child in foster care. So I thank you for the work you do. And I thank you so much for giving some time today. So happy to do it. It's great to talk to you, Christy. Let me sign off by saying the next um, CASA training is in April. So you need to fill out an application, have an interview, get some references. But if anyone listening is interested in becoming a CASA, I would uh, just go to kingcountycasa.gov and look up uh, what's necessary, make a phone call because it's not too late to get into the April training if you're accepted. That is fantastic. And because my listenership is international, actually, I encourage anybody who's thinking of it, Google is your friend. Just Google your county Absolutely. and uh, your county and CASA, or you can go to the CASA website, which I will link um, in the the show notes of this episode. I'll put a link to the, the CASA website where you can find out where in your state, you can go to become a CASA and find out more even there about what's expected and, and what kinds of background checks and things like that, that you'll have to do. But, um, thank you so much for putting that plug in and for, um, for all that you've done. I just really appreciate you so much. You are so welcome. Good luck with the podcast. You've been listening to my conversation with Laura, a cuddler turned CASA who has made a tremendous difference in the lives of many children in foster care. To learn more about what it takes to become a CASA and to find training opportunities in your community, please visit nationalcasagal.org. I've put that link in the show notes below. I've also put a link in the show notes directly to a webpage where you can search by your state for local CASA training programs. Now that's just for listeners who are in the United States. If you're outside the United States, I encourage you to use Google to find your local training opportunities. As Laura said, there are many more children in foster care than there are CASAs to serve them. And so the need is huge. It's a great opportunity to invest in the lives of vulnerable children and to make a real difference. Be sure to subscribe to a Fostered Life podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're enjoying this resource, consider becoming a patron of Fostered Life on Patreon. To learn more about how to pledge as little as $1 a month to support this podcast, as well as the YouTube channel and blog, please go to patreon.com slash a fostered life. For more information and resources for foster parents, please visit afosteredlife.com where you'll find blog posts, recommended reading, YouTube videos, and social media links, all designed to help foster parents feel more equipped for their foster care journey. It's my prayer that no foster parent ever feels like they're going at it alone. If you're a foster parent who's feeling like you're the only one out there or you're just out there on your own, consider joining the Flourishing Foster Parent 
a community I designed to encourage, equip, and connect foster parents. You can find info on The Flourishing Foster Parent at afosteredlife.com FFP. One more thing. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening, and thanks for caring about foster care.